0: Good morning, familia. Good morning. My name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I wanted to welcome you all again. To those of you that are here worshiping with us in person, those of you worshiping with us online, we want to let you know that if you are weary and need rest, if you are mourning and long for comfort, if you have failed and desire strength, if you have sinned and need a savior, we welcome you all in the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners. Amen. Amen. I'm super excited because today we get to start this four-part series based on the book of Ruth. And we have called this series, Ruth, the Story of a Loving Life. And since the, the book of Ruth has four chapters, we're going to grab one sermon per chapter. Now, someone may ask, why would the church do, during this season, a series in the book of Ruth? Now, I hope you know that as preachers and pastors of the church, whenever we are thinking about the preaching schedule, usually we do the homework of thinking ahead, why is it that the church needs to hear what the Bible says? Well, I think that there's many reasons why this series is important to us. But I want to read one verse that explains the context in which Ruth was written, the context in which Ruth and the rest of the family lived... Because I think that if you read that verse, you would understand why it is said that we chose to do this four-part part series today. This is what the book of Judges says, which is part of the context of Ruth. In verse 21, chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. The ESV translation puts this like, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think that that verse is a description of our culture and our time today. We are part of a culture and a time in which everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes. Interesting that history always repeats itself and I think that the book of Ruth is actually gonna help us at least in two different ways. Number one, He's going to remind us that God is always working in the midst of darkness, that God is always at work in the midst of chaos, and that there's no reason why Christians should be hopeless because God is working always in the midst of chaos, number one. And number two, I think that the book of Ruth is going to help us because he's going to show us that God works through his people in the midst of chaos. It is when Christians live a faithful, loving life that he uses his people in the midst of darkness. So today, as you heard and as you read, we're going to go through a chapter for the first chapter of the book Book of Ruth. I don't promise to explain everything there because there's so much to talk about. What we're going to do is grab the main concepts of the story to share it with you. Now, the way we're going to do this today is we're going to grab three of the main characters in chapter 1. Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth. And we're asking the Bible the question, what is it that they had that we need today? What can we learn from Elimelech, Naomi, his wife, and Ruth, his um, daughter-in-law? Now, this is the interesting thing here. From Elimelech, we can learn what it means to submit to God as king. From Naomi, we can learn what it means to live a sacrificial life. And from Ruth, we can learn what it means to be committed. Submission, sacrifice, commitment. Do me a favor and ask the person next to you if you like the person. Um, Are you ready for this? Go ahead. Now, if you don't like the person, this is a time when you pray or you ask for forgiveness because obviously there's something wrong there. Let's go with point number one. Let's talk about Elimelech and his life of submission. Look how the text starts in chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, this is how we know that this is in the times of of the book of Judges, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, you really have to pay attention to to the phrase, Famine in the land, because he's giving you a description of what was happening in their environment. And everyone knew at that time and in that context that famine in the land was both uh, something that you experience physically, because there's no food in the land, but at the same time they they understood that this was God exercising discipline because people at that time in that context have... Some sort of love-hate relationship with God. How do I know that? Well, if you have ever uh, read the book of Judges, you know that that's the journey. You know, they love the Lord, they submit to the Lord, they live for the Lord, and then something happens and they walk away from him. And then God brings discipline, and people cry out, and God forgives them, and then he raises another leader, and the leader comes and leads people again to the Lord, and to repentance, and all these things, and they live well for a while, and then they die again, and resurrect again, and die again, and resurrect again, right? So this is the story of the book of Judges, and it's within this context that Ruth, Naomi, Elimelech is part, it's where they play a role in that story. Now, It is important at this point to understand that there is a distinction between the wrath of God and the discipline of God. Why wouldn't God destroy all the Israelites if that was their journey? Well, because God did not want to bring wrath upon them because the wrath of God always has to do with destruction, full destruction. This is the reason why when Jesus goes to the cross, He does not take the discipline of God, but the wrath of God. What we all deserve was not the discipline of God, but the wrath of God. And this is the reason why God makes a distinction. What God does toward his people is only discipline. God does not punish his people. God does not exercise his wrath toward his people. Jesus already took that. What God does, though, is that he inflicts discipline because the goal of discipline is always restoration. God, like a good surgeon, would always bring or allow pain into our lives for our sake, aiming restoration. Now, I know that there's a bunch of people that struggle with this, Because there's a ton of people, even inside the church, that believe that the best way to learn is by having the right information. It's actually, I think that there will be people here, and there has been times in my life in which I think, well, God doesn't need to bring pain to my life. If he tells me, I will understand. Well, that's a brother that is struggling with the Bible. Let me tell you why. Because if you're really honest, really honest, you know that there are things in your heart that you only learn and you only deal with them if God allows pain. That's better. (laughs) You know how I know that? Because even as adults, for those of us that are adults, and please forgive me, little ones, there are things that we learn the way children sometimes learn. Like I can remember telling both of my daughters when they were little, don't touch that because you're gonna get burned. And then I'll give a whole explanation. You know, there is heat, there's energy, touch it, oh, all that stuff. I will explain it, right? I will turn around and then I will hear something like, ah!" (laughs) there it is. And as a good father, Full of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> would look at them and say, "I told you." <laughs> you know that's. You know how I know that that's how we learn. Because I got burned before. You got burned before. As much as we want to think that we learn just by having information, that is not true. Imagine. I like that brother. Now, this text is full of ironic language. You know, this family is in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And the irony of the text is that it says that in the house of bread, there is no food. And then you have Elimelech with his wife, Naomi, and his two kids moving to Moab. Now, why move to Moab? Now, I got to give you a little bit of context here because there's this hate relationship between the Israelites and Moab forever. Actually, to move to Moab as an Israelite will be considered an act of betrayal. No one in their right mind will move to Moab because Moab will not be a safe place for an Israelite. How do I know that? Well, a couple of things here. Number one, the Moabites came from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter in Genesis chapter 19. That's where the Moabites came from. The Moabites did not help the Israelites when they they were escaping uh, from Egypt. That's in Numbers chapter 22. There's a really interesting story in Numbers chapter 25 in which you have this Moabite king that hires this prophet to curse the Israelites and God will not allow it. But this is what this prophet does to curse the Israelites without cursing the Israelites. He talks to all the Moabite women, and he sends them all to seduce the Israelites' men. And because of that, the Israelites' men started to worship their gods. No wonder they hated the Moabites. No wonder there's this weird dynamic and relationship between the Israelites and these people. So the question remains, why would God allow Elimelech to go to this place in which uh, enemy territory? Well, scholars have different opinions about that. Uh, Some people say that the reason why he went over there, it was because Elimelech was being irresponsible. Some people think that the reason why he went over there is because he lacked faith, and that's the reason why he moved. Some people feel that Elimelech, when he went to Moab, was because he was being unfaithful to God. And some other people would argue that the reason why he goes over there is because he's being a good husband and a good father, and he needs to provide for his family. But the reality is that the text is silent about the reason why Elimelech moved to Moab. Super silent. Super silent. So what I want to do here, and I want to be super careful, because this is my opinion. So I want to offer, I want you to consider an opinion, because there's not a verse that tells me that this is exactly what happened. Consider my argument as that, an opinion. So if there's one thing that you can learn about the book of Ruth, is that names really matter. Every single name in that story matters a lot. And every single name in that story is a a description of the personality and the character of everyone mentioned there. Interesting that the name Elimelech means, my God is king. Meaning that in the life of Elimelech, in the way he lived, He was not being controlled by his emotions. He was not being controlled by his desires. He was not being controlled by people's opinions. He was not being controlled by anything but God as king. So if there's one thing that we know about this man, is that he had no issues submitting to God as king. I think that that's a lesson that modern-day Christians Need to remember, God is our counselor. God is our friend. God is our father. But God is king. That's why the Ten Commandments are not the ten suggestions. Elimelech understands that. I think that it's safe to assume that the reason why Elimelech was moving to Moab, even though it didn't make any sense, was because the Lord somehow was leading him there. Somehow. Now, there's a reason why I think that this is what is happening here. Because if you know the story, you know that God has a plan with the Moabites. In part of his restoration plan for the whole creation The Moabites, in specific Ruth, is going to play a very important role in the story of redemption. And if that is true then, when the Lord is prompting Elimelech to go to Moab is because that's part of his plan. In his sovereignty, he is going to use a Gentile to bring restoration to all things. That's why I think that Elimelech, Chose to submit to the Lord and obeyed the Lord even if it did not make any sense. You and I need that today. We are part of a culture in which the most important thing, they say, is for you to do you. We are part of a culture that says that you ought to submit to no one except your own desires, your dreams, your feelings, your plans, because you do you. You are first. And here we have an example of a man that has all the reasons in the world to not be obedient and submit to the Lord, and he does. Even if it didn't make any sense. You know, he knew that he could get killed. You know that there there was nothing safe to go into the Moabites' land. See, what Elimelech is doing here is the same thing that all the missionaries that we met for the last two weeks have done. Why would a person, why would a couple with kids and all move to a a different part of the world, many cases in many times in which he's not safe? Because the Lord told them to. That is the difference between faith and religion. Religion submits to the Lord only if there's a benefit to me. Faith submits to the Lord because God is king. Because God is king. How do we live in the midst of a world in which everyone do what they think is right under their own eyes? You submit to him. That's what we learn from Elimelech. Listen now to what we learn from Naomi. Very important character in this story. And with Naomi, there's this unexpected twist in the story. Verse 3 says that now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Can you say died? And she was left with her two sons, and they married a Moabite woman, one named Orpah, that's a great name for your kid, and the other, Ruth. Now, we need to uh, stop here for a second, because this is part of the whole story, which is amazing. You know, every Israelite knew that uh, if you were part of God's people, you were never to marry anybody outside your faith. Like, everyone knew that. Part of the reason why they know that this is not what, they got, what God will want from them is because they know that once you, once you have an intimate relationship with someone that is outside your faith, like marriage, there's a high probability, 99.9% probability that their gods become your gods. And that you will start worshiping their gods instead of them worshiping your God. As a pastor, I've seen this time and time again. So this idea, I'm gonna convert him, I'm gonna convert her, that doesn't work! So, why would these two men, young men, marry two Moabites? See, scholars agree in saying that maybe what happened is that when Elimelech died, these two young men started doing crazy stuff and completely ignored what the Lord had requested of them. Maybe they didn't know how to submit to God as king. Maybe love was love. Maybe what mattered most was to feel love. Now, this is the reason why in the New Testament, it says that we should not marry in an unequal yoke. That's exactly what that means. If you are a Christian, you marry a Christian. If you are married and your spouse is not a Christian, you don't have permission to walk away. But that's what the New Testament talks about this. It tells you a lot about the spiritual condition of these two young men. But the reason why I wanted to pay attention, stop here and have you pay attention to that is because there's something so beautiful and unique about this specific thing. See, when you look at the story, God uses even the sins of these two young men to accomplish his purposes. God's plans are not restricted by your obedience or your disobedience. God's plans cannot change because I'm faithful or unfaithful. Let me put it this way. I've shared this with you before, but let me put it this way. You cannot mess God's plans up. You cannot increase His plans or decrease His plans. God is not bound to your faithfulness. God is God. And He will accomplish what He wants to accomplish. He might even use The dumb things you and I have done. Now, the story continues and says in verse 4 that they lived there for 10 years. Now, these two young men died. Can you say died? died? And this last sentence changes everything. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And in that context, and in that time, that meant the end of Naomi's life, the end of her heritage, and the end of her legacy. Why do I say that? Well, number one, Naomi is way too advanced in years to remarry again, even though she could. But nobody will look at her. Two, Orpa and Ruth have no kids. Therefore, that was the end of the family name. Like if I die, there's 20 million Rodriguez in the world. <laughs> if you are Smith, there's 50 million of you guys out there. But not here. That was the end of the family's name number three she belongs to the oldest clan of the israelites with the uh, husband dying and the kids dying that was the end of that clan and number three in that context and that time when people got married the wife moved into the husband's family the girls always went to the husband's family so if the mother here lost the, the husband and the kids, means that she was completely unprotected. No future hope, no security, no one to take care of her. Because in that context and in that time, everything depended on the men. Let, let me make it clear to you. So there was a study done to prove the point of this and to make the distinction between American men and people in that part of the world. So in this survey, this is the question. To American men, your mother, your wife, and your daughters are in a sinking boat. And you can rescue only one of them. Who would you rescue? Now, listen. If I were to ask that question here, that would be super awkward and it could go south super fast. (laughs) But because I love you, I'm going to ask you the question. (laughs) To the men present here, if you're in a boat and you have your mother, your wife, and your daughters, which one are you going to save? Don't respond because you're going to get in trouble, but just think about it. I bet that there's a sister here looking at, what are you going to (laughs) say? Shame, shame. It's interesting that in the study, 60% of the American men, 60% of the American men said that they will rescue their daughters first. 40% said that they will rescue their wife. Sorry, moms. (laughs) That's crazy, isn't it? You're your own. <laughs> the same study was done with Saudi men. Every single one of them said that they would save their mother. I'm not sure if you should marry those kind of men. <laughs> but it tells you a lot about the culture. So if your father died as a man, you knew that you had the responsibility to take care of your mom. No retirement home, people. You take care of your parents. Is that of cultural Yes, it is. So Naomi has nothing. Literally nothing. And the reason why I wanted you to take the time to think about this it's because what she's about to say now gets elevated to another level. This is not a young woman that gets the chance to get married again and have more kids. This is an older woman that has nothing. And look at what Naomi says in verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Can you see what this woman is doing? She's choosing to love sacrificially. She is putting these two young women first down her security. She's sacrificing the tiny little things she has. For their sake, Naomi is willing to disadvantage herself For the sake of these two young women. And if there's one thing that we can learn from Naomi is this. Real love is never just measured by what you say and what you give. That's good. And you ought to do that. But real love is measured by what you're willing to sacrifice. And by how much you are willing to die to yourself—that's love. Can you imagine if everyone in this room, or listening to this at home, would actually learn to live like that in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this chaos? Can you imagine what Christians? to learn how to live like that. Could do in this world. It's completely countercultural. While the word is saying you do you and think about you, Christianity says completely the opposite. Deny yourself, love others more than what you love yourself. At least the Bible says, love them as you love yourself. Now, was this easy for Naomi? of course not she's like "Ah, i'm gonna die you guys go that's not what's happening here actually naomi is super honest on how hard this thing is for her once again something that we need to learn as 21st century christians look at how honest she is in verse 13 would you wait until they grew up? As she's thinking about if, if they wait, she has kids and they could wait for that. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. Notice that expression there for a second. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Notice what she says. I'm going through this because of the Lord. Complete Honesty. She says something similar when she gets to Bethlehem in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Once again, so much to learn from this lady. It's a lady that knows that things are complicated. It's a lady that knows that she has lost everything. And it's a lady that is willing to love sacrificially for the sake of somebody else. And even as she loves like that, she's honest enough to recognize that she struggles with it. Not in loving part but she struggles with her experience and situation. She's not repressing these feelings. I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. She does not have this phony optimism. How you doing? In victory brother! She's not trying to distract herself. This is not happening. This is not happening. Let's go dance. Let's go buy. She's not doing any of that stuff. She's completely honest. She chooses to love sacrificially. She's completely honest about her struggle. But in the midst of all of that, she does not lose hope. How do I know that? Because of the the names she used to describe God. She calls God Lord, which is Yahweh, which is the most personal God, name God has. She's saying, I got my personal God with me. And she calls God Almighty, which is the Shaddai name of God, which means that God is still in control and God is a cosmic ruler. And all of this at the same time. Don't you think that that's what we need today? Don't you think that this is how we're going to make a difference in this world? Don't you think that this is the most countercultural thing we could do? Learning how to put other people first. Loving sacrificially for their benefit. Being honest about the, the struggles we have. And yet, never losing hope. See, the Bible does not give you permission for toxic pessimism. Oh, this is, there's nothing we could do. And the Bible does not give you permission for um, uh, uh, phony optimism. Everything is going to be okay. You don't know. What the Bible tells you is love faithfully, love sacrificially, be honest. Cry out like a human being and don't lose hope. That's how you live in a world in which everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes. We learn from Elimelech submission. We learn from Naomi, a sacrifice, and lastly, we're gonna learn from Ruth, submission. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time in Ruth because we're gonna be talking a lot about her for the rest of the for the rest of the book. But you could one thing that you can see though. Is that there's a special relationship between Naomi and Ruth? If you guys notice in the verse that we read before, she calls Ruth and the other daughter-in-law daughters, which is super interesting because in that context and in that time, when your husband died, you automatically became your mother-in-law, a mother-in-law's uh, slave. So the issues that we have today with mother-in-laws, that's where that comes from. <laughs> but that is not the relationship they have. Naomi sees these ladies as daughters. And it is the Lord using Naomi and her love, what the Lord used to change Ruth's heart. To the point, when Naomi's trying to push him away, look at how Ruth responds. Verse 14, at this they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, so she went away, but Ruth clung to her. Can you say clung? clung? Later on, Naomi insists that Ruth goes away, and look at what she says in verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you where you go I will go where you stay I will stay your people will be my people and your God my God verse 17 where you die I will die and there I will be buried may the lord deal with me even more severely if I if we get separated somehow even when we die now this is this commitment we can see it in verse 14 with the word cling Which is a crazy word. Because the first time we see that word is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. When God calls the man to leave his mother, hello, and father, hello, and hold fast to his wife. To cling to his wife. This is why as Christians, when we talk about marriage, we don't talk in terms of a contract. You do your part, I do my part. If you don't do your part, I don't do my part. That's a contract. Crappy marriage. Is that a bad word? I said it already. (laughs) That's why as Christians, when we talk about marriage, we talk about covenant. Means I commit to you regardless if you commit to me. Isn't that crazy? And Ruth uses the same expression in her relationship with her mother-in-law. Now, I want to argue that there's a reason why the book of Ruth is called the book of Ruth. And because she's the best example of what it means to be a God follower. Actually, I think that Ruth submitted to God even more than Elimelech. And I want to argue that Ruth Uh, loved even more sacrificially than Naomi. This is what this scholar says. Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. No God has called her like Elimelech. No Didi has promised her blessings like Abraham. No human being has come to her aid. She is by herself. Literally, the only person that has something to lose here, if she moves with Naomi, is her. She lives and chooses without the support of a group, and she knows that the fruit of her decision, going to Bethlehem, may well be emptiness of rejection, indeed of death. This is a Moabite moving into the Bethlehem uh, territory. And there is more. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country and faith, but she has also reversed sexual alliance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. God uses a Gentile as an example of radical faith In the story of the Israelites. This lady knows what it means to commit. Don't you think that that's what we need today? Don't you think that that's what we need? We have to remember that God is king. And we submit to him. that the way we're gonna impact and change the world is by actually exercising sacrificial love. And that when we say that we're gonna love someone, we cling to that person like if there's no tomorrow. Your marriage will be different, your friendship will be different, your family relationships will be different, your relationship with your neighbors will be different, the way you work will be different, everything will be different. So the question for us really quick here is can we live this out? Is it possible for anybody to live like this? Yeah. You know why? Because we receive the blessing of the faithfulness of all these people. You know how I know that? Because it is from Ruth that King David comes. And it is from King David that Jesus comes, someone that submitted to God, sacrificed, and is and clings to us. See, it is Jesus, the one that submitted to the Father, even when everything inside of him asked if it's possible that this cup goes from me. It is because of his submission that we get to be here today. Jesus submitted to the Father because of you and for you. Why wouldn't you imitate the life of your Savior? Not only Jesus did that, but he showed you what sacrificial love looks like. You know what's the difference between Naomi and Jesus? Naomi was willing to sacrifice her life. Jesus literally sacrificed his life. Why? Because of you. Why wouldn't you imitate the Savior you have? Why wouldn't you exercise the same thing that you have received? Uh, How about if I tell you that Jesus gives us something better than what Ruth was doing for Naomi? See, Ruth clung to Naomi. But because of Jesus, pay attention church, God the Father, the God Almighty King clings to you. Even when you don't want to cling to Him. Because in Jesus, there's nothing that could separate you from the love of God. Why wouldn't you show that to every people? Or to everybody? When you already have the most secure person, the most reliable person, the most loving person, clinging to you like crazy. Leave out what you have. Amen? Lord, we pray that you speak to us more and more. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit and the presence of your Spirit, Bringing the gospel to our minds time and time again, reminding us of how Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus submitted. How our Lord Jesus lived um, loving, sacrifice, love. How our Lord Jesus gave us the best gift ever. For God, the Father, to never walk away from us, even when we want to walk away from him. Lord in the midst of a broken world you have placed us here the same way you placed Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth for us to live lives Lord that will point to you that will will make Christianity look beautiful so people will wonder why is it that we live the way we do and then we point them to the truth. Please allow us to be that, to live that in our homes, in our works, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our country. And we pray for all of that in the name of Jesus. And we all say,